time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Have an easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky day, Mr. Sumner. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. Stay tuned, because it's on now. The Tom Sumner Program. COVID-19 is the biggest health crisis in our lifetime. We're working around the clock with doctors and hospitals to stop it, but we need your help. Even if you don't feel sick, you could be carrying it. And just one person with the virus can infect another 40, who then infect thousands more. So I've issued an executive order requiring everyone to stay home to help limit the spread of the virus. Let's protect the people we love. Stay home and stay safe. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program. As we roll into the second hour of our three-hour tour, we're going to talk space. And uh, we're going to do that with the author of a new book that's called Not Necessarily Rocket Science. And uh, it's uh, it comes from aerospace professional Kelly Girardi, who joins me by phone. Kel- Kelly, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Tom. Did you recognize the music? I did. Was that especially for me? That was especially for you. That was. Uh, uh, it's great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. A little touch of the uh, Jetsons uh, theme music there, um, Kelly. This book is is geared for people who are interested in the space industry, or is this something that that everybody might call a little something from? Yeah, I think it's a bit of both. I think, you know, there's this um, misconception, I believe, about the space industry where folks think that you have to be some sort of superhuman to be involved with NASA or to be involved in the space industry. Or a rocket scientist. Or a rocket scientist, exactly, (laughs) exactly. It's like this sort of, you know, an elitism that exists and almost a stigma, uh, like a barrier to entry. And I wanted to break that barrier down and show that space is our collective past. It's our collective future as a species. Everyone has a hand to play in this next giant leap. And not all of it is rocket science. That's the title of the book, not necessarily rocket science, because there are a multitude of ways that folks can have impact with different skill sets in the space industry. So whether you're a casual armchair space enthusiasts just interested to hear about this special moment in time or whether you're looking to get involved yourself um this book hopefully has something for you what prompted you to um 
to write the book. Yeah. So I was reflecting on the fact that, you know, there's comparisons to the Renaissance here with the space age in my mind. And in the Renaissance, art was only one manifestation of this new way of thinking, right? We saw cultural innovation happening across very vastly different disciplines of medicine, technology, religion, politics, philosophy, science, etc. And I was reflecting that similarly, engineering innovation right now represents just one small slice of life in the space age, but that this is actually a broader cultural movement and that our next giant leap will require the contributions of our engineers and everyone in between. If you think about it, we have architects that will design space habitats and stations, but we also need designers who will turn those into homes away from Earth. And for every scientist, we need artists who will inspire, journalists who can report, educators who will mold the next generation into students, and adults who are motivated and capable of contributing to that future. So I was thinking about it from that perspective and also reflecting that, you know, for the first few hundred humans, who journeyed into space, their flights focused entirely on function. But for the next few hundred who will travel, we finally have this opportunity to optimize on experience and thinking about what that means for the next wave of space travelers, many of whom won't be engineers. And so it was a very exciting perspective to think about. Well, it's interesting that you mention uh, architects because um, I had a, a guy used to do, uh, an uh, astronomer who... Uh, used to do the show on a regular basis and and we would talk about science things and and uh, what was going on at NASA and all of this different uh, tech stuff and and then he uh, he retired and went permanently fishing but we used to talk about these missions that would take up whole sections to attach to the International Space Station um, adding uh, actual rooms and, and things. And right. we talked about uh, space station remodeling projects. <laughs> and yeah. and, and it, it kind of had that feel to it that this was um, more about creating the space than, than it was about uh, functionality. At least the way we were talking about it, it's like, oh, they're going to add a room to the space station. And um, right, and and that's going to be important because we're already talking about colonists to Mars. Yeah, absolutely. It's you know, there's no longer as much of a giggle factor with that concept as there was perhaps a decade ago. Now, I I think people understand that if anything, this is more of an economic barrier than it is an engineering barrier at this point you know the will of the people you know to spend that much money to achieve this great thing and so i think that's quite an incredible time to be alive when you know our, our economic barriers to settling mars are more extreme than the engineering one i am old enough to remember watching on television the uh live the, the first moon landing and remembering how much a part of of our lives space exploration seemed to be and then all of a sudden it just sort of dropped off the radar um and and now it seems back again um is it about the money or is it about the innovation 
Like, you know, we have just within the last few days, we've seen uh, the first non-NASA manned mission to the International Space Station. Um, that's an amazing thing. Yeah, it's an extraordinary feat. And, you know, I think it's a, there are a couple of factors. One, certainly, you know, after the moon landings, I, I do think there was decades of growing frustration that, you know, after landing on the moon and having this achievement that we hadn't been back, let alone traveled further. And so I do think that there was a, a you know, a need for a revival. I think the commercial space flight industry really in partnership with NASA was filling that gap. And, you know, the spectacle of human spaceflight, there, there's just nothing that beats it. Obviously, as you and I both know, NASA has been incredibly active in the years since uh, landing humans on the moon. But what we've been missing in the years since the shuttle program retired uh, was that spectacle of human spaceflight launching humans from U.S. soil. We haven't done that in over a decade because we've been reliant on uh, Russian space vehicles because we, we retired our own capability in the space shuttle program. And so to have SpaceX, a commercial vehicle, in full partnership with NASA, restoring access to the space station from U.S. soil, it just brought back all of the memories and spectacle of human spaceflight last week, watching them walk down the hallway, watching the astronauts get you know, ingress into the cabin, get seated, close the hatch door, wait for liftoff. I mean, it's just an extraordinary feeling that can't be replicated by robotic spaceflight. And yeah, it's it, it's a lot different watching those those people climb into that uh, that ship and and take off, as opposed to the launching of. Um, even telescopes and, and robots and things. And, and we've been really much more prolific than I think the public knows about in our ongoing space exploration. Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you think about the past 50 years alone, which is a, a blink of an eye in the grand scale of time for us, you know, we've put humans on the moon, we've launched probes into interstellar space, we've launched space telescopes that show us all of those little bits of confetti coming back that aren't stars or planets. They're entire galaxies or clusters of galaxies, hundreds of billions of galaxies out there, and we're still exploring the far reaches of our own. So it's an extraordinary time of possibility and knowledge and now new capability, which I think is really exciting. You know, for me, building a career in the commercial space industry uh, 10 years ago when things were still enough of a ground floor where I was able to really have doors opened for me was just incredible. And now seeing where some of these companies are today, it's just extraordinary. Um, did I read this right, that you um, did a, uh, a multi-week crew rotation at the Mars Desert Research Station? What is that and what was that like? Yeah, absolutely. So this is one of the um, m one of my fondest memories um, in the space industry so far. So the Mars Desert Research Station, the MDRS, is a prototype laboratory deep in the San Rafael swell of the Utah desert, where the ground, thanks to iron oxide, really looks red and it looks like Mars. So it's a perfect analog habitat where various 
space agencies, scientists, research organizations conduct analog Mars research. So um, conducting research as though you were a crew on Mars. And so I was part of a team of seven international multidisciplinary scientists and researchers, and we spent a few weeks on the red planet. And we, we had an, an incredible time. I mean, one, our simulation was very high fidelity in the sense that we agreed ahead of time that to preserve simulation, we were not going to um, break the sim. So we were having no real-time contact with Earth. Everything was being relayed with a time delay through our own mission control. Uh, we were wearing spacesuits anytime we left the habitat. We were going on EVAs, uh, extravehicular activity, um, geological surveys. We were conducting research in our greenhouse. We were growing crops in simulated Martian soil. Um, from NASA, and so we had we were just able to conduct this research, and it really drove home that this is a a near term possibility that the earliest settlers of Mars very well are alive and working today, and it, it's just an incredible window of opportunity. And we did have one uh, research experiment that did draw quite a bit of attention and, and was pretty fun. Um, we were the first crew to try to academically prove that you could brew beer on Mars by um, <laughs> the hops. <laughs> and so we were, we were having a lot of fun with, with our crops. Um, and so that was, yeast has already been to space in, in the space station, but with um, sorghum seeds and hops rhizomes, we were able to at least prove that you could uh, germinate all of those things. And together, those are all the constituent ingredients of beer. So we had a lot of fun with that. And you mentioned that you were experimenting with growing crops in Martian soil. Can Martian soil um, grow crops the, the way we do here? Yeah, so, you know, the soil is going to be very different chemical properties. But we, at the time, this was in 2014, we were using the highest fidelity regolith, um, or basically Mars dirt, that was available at the time. You know, the, the problem with any of these studies is obviously, you know, you're not using real Mars dirt. Um, and we haven't yet had a soil sample return from the red planet. This is something that we're hoping that the current Mars rover uh, perseverance uh, in the future of its mission with a return soil sample or, or just sediment sample at all will be able to help with. But best guesses is what we were working with in terms of um, the, the soil stimulants that we had. So, yes, it's, it's definitely going to be possible in certain places. I, you know, the movie The Martian did a really great job of showing the potential for potato growth as probably, you know, the hardiest crop that we're looking at. And we did uh, grow potatoes as well. Um, but I think there's a lot of challenges that we need to be thinking about on Mars. And it's a perfect example of how... This isn't just the rocket science, right? Getting there and the vehicle that is going to take that extraordinary journey is just one component. We it, also uh, need agriculture specialists, all of these other uh, skill sets that are going to make it work. Kelly, I need to take a break here. Can you stick around for a few minutes and we'll, we'll dig Absolutely. down some more? All right. My guest is Kelly Girardi, author of Not Necessarily Rocket Science. And we're going to talk some more after we let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us, we have some messages as well. And then we'll be right back. 
Everybody's doing a brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Hi, I'm Dr. Jonay Caldoun. We know that COVID-19 is spreading rapidly across Michigan right now. The most important thing people can do to protect themselves is social distancing. That means unless you are a critical infrastructure worker or going out to get food or medicine for your home, you should be staying at home. Stay home, stay safe, save lives. Most of the music you hear on the Tom Sumner program is provided by local artists. Tune in Fridays at 11 for live music and conversation with some of the area's most talented singers, songwriters, and performers. Hi, this is Greg Nagy. Hey, this is Hoppa. Hi, this is Joe Bai from the Blue Lions. Hi, this is Alexander Zondrick. Hi, this is Mark Farner. This is Maurice Davis. Hi, this is Rochelle Ray. Hi there, folks. This is Sweet Willie T. This is Steve from the Nashville office. I'm Gwen Pennyman Hemphill. Tom Sumner Program, celebrating the rich talent pool from Flint, Genesee County, and throughout Michigan. Sixties, the marches, the beans, the draft card burnings, and best of all, the music. Well, now Apple House has collected the finest of those songs on one album called Golden Protest, performed by the original artists who made them famous. You'll thrill to Society's Child by Janicean, Pleasant Valley Sunday by the Monkees, What Have They Done to the Rain by the Searchers, In the Ghetto by Elvis Presley, Silent Night, 7 O'Clock News by Simon and Garfunkel, and who can ever forget this all-time classic... Yes, it's Barry Maguire's immortal Eve of Destruction. And, of course, my own Masters of War, all for the incredibly low price of $3.95. And if you order now, you'll also receive a treasury of acid rock featuring vanilla fudge, blue chair, frigid pink, Moby Grape, the electric prunes, Jeff's airplane, Lotharian hand people, to name but a few. Plus, as part of this special limited offer, you also get the best of the supergroups with Traffic, Cream, Blind Faith, Ginger Baker's Air Force, and many, many others. Yes, this is a collector's dream, Golden Protest, plus two fabulous 60s albums, all for only $3.95. If you were to purchase these selections separately, they'd cost you hundreds of dollars, and many cannot be found anywhere at any price. Well... It's time for my boot heels to be wandering. But here's something will tell you how you can get this amazing record package. Here's how to order this amazing record package. Just send $3.95 and check your money order plus your name and address to Apple House Box 70K South Bend, Indiana. Once again, that's $3.95 and check your money to Apple House Box 70 Do it today. Tom Sumner. 
TomSumnerProgram.com The Tom Sumner Program.com This is Jill Stein, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome back, everybody. We're uh, talking with aerospace professional and um, author of a new book called Not Necessarily Rocket Science, Kelly Girardi. Kelly, w- welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. Yeah, thank you. See, so, yeah, I've got theme music for you and everything. perfect um just before the break we were talking about growing things in martian soil and you were saying we've had to simulate that um until we actually get a soil sample back from mars um one of the things in and we see this in science fiction movies all the time um attempts to bring things back from other planets and and other planetary bodies um, is is always the uh, the impetus for releasing a pandemic in this uh, time of COVID nineteen. Um, what kinds of protocols actually uh, protect us from that happening in real life? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's a, far back as Apollo. You know, the astronauts had. Um, pretty heavy quarantine <laughs> upon returning to Earth, as, as did all of the materials that traveled with them. But um, we have a very robust planetary protection policy and these sort of like guiding principles that are baked into the design of a mission that helps to prevent contamination, either of the place where we're going and taking the sample from, or in the case of simple return missions like we're talking about, Earth. And so we have a planetary uh, protection officer who is help, helping to design and work uh, for NASA designing exactly what our protocols are going to be, how we're going to make sure that the sample integrity is also um, kept as, as perfectly preserved as possible so that we can study it, right? I mean, the, the contamination goes both ways. Um, and so that is something that is top of mind when we do get to the point. And, and this is like a dream come true, right? We we've, we've haven't been able to have a sample return before from Mars. We've certainly had it from the moon, but this is going to be a whole new ball game and, and very exciting for scientists once, once they get their hands on that specimen. Kelly, how did you get interested in going into aerospace as a, a profession? That has not until very recently been uh, pursued by women much. Yeah, and you know, for me, it's, now that I'm so steeped in it, it's almost embarrassing to admit that I, I was a late-blooming space nerd yeah, I didn't grow up thinking, oh, I want to be an astronaut or I want to be a rocket scientist after <laughs> work in space. Yeah, I had no idea what I wanted to do, and that carried through college. I ended up with a film degree, actually, which was great. I, I really fell in love with the art of storytelling, um, and that really resonated for me. And I realized the entertainment industry wasn't quite for me. 
feeling a, a bit lost, you know, a tale as old as time, graduate college, have no idea what you want to do. Um, and I ended up getting involved with the Explorers Club in New York City, where I lived at the time. And I was just so amazed by these people, these explorers. It's a century-old scientific organization and professional society dedicated to exploration. Um, and I was so inspired by them. I was willing to do whatever it took to get involved. And at that time, it meant working coat checks and, um, you know, volunteering my time for evening events and at the front desk. And I met some of my earliest mentors in the space industry there, including an astronaut named Richard Garriott Zakayo, a private astronaut who funded his own flight to the International Space Station, tens of millions of dollars. Uh, and he and his wife, Leticia, became my earliest mentors. They actually ended up introducing me to my first role in the space industry at the Commercial Space Flight Federation. They ended up later sponsoring me as a member myself into the Explorers Club. And my entire career, I've uh, really made a point of trying to live up to their expectations of me. And most recently, uh, I was actually elected to the board of the Explorers Club, which was just a really nice narrative arc a decade later, going from coat check to the board of directors. And that was really exciting. And, and I'm just so humbled by the opportunity. But for the space part of the career... I fell in love with the idea of human spaceflight, and many people fall in love with that much earlier than I did. I was a late bloomer, like I said, but once it clicked for me that we could leave this planet and break the chains of gravity, and there's so much to explore, I just desperately wanted to be a part of that. And so I started in the commercial space industry, fell in love with that public-private partnership concept and seeing how much momentum could be unlocked by the Silicon Valley pace of engineering innovation mixed with the deep expertise of government and NASA. And that's where I built my career. I did policy, I did media, I did uh, program management, then I led business development for a rocket company, and then I got involved in bioastronautics research myself where I was really aiming. And, and somewhere, the limiter on my imagination was taken off and I started to think, wow, I could actually go to space myself. I can train for that. That's not a dream that's only reserved for, you know, this very, very special set of people. Any of us are going to have the capability to go, and, and that was just hugely motivating. How did you get, uh, connect with the Explorers Club to begin with? That's not a natural progression from uh, not being as interested in the, the entertainment industry as you thought you might be. Yeah, walking by it on the Upper East Side. Really? The first. Uh, you were a walk-in? You know, seeing that flag. See, yeah, seeing the flag flying um, on, on the street on East East uh, and, and walking by the building was actually the first. And then um, uh, about six months later, I heard of the Explorers Club annual dinner was happening, New York City's longest-running charity event as well as explorers from around the world. And I had tickets, and I, I bought tickets, and anyone can buy tickets to go to that dinner. And I went, and I remember seeing uh, Richard Garriott, um, who was also a famous video game developer. That's actually how I knew him in my teens. I wasn't a space nerd, but I was very much a video game nerd. Um, and I saw him across the room and did not notice that he was actually standing next to a spacesuit that bore his own name. <laughs> he had been to space, and I had missed that. Um, and I actually went up and introduced myself and learned all about his, his spacesuit and his space mission 
and about the Explorers Club. And I left that dinner that night, which is really the Academy Awards of Exploration, uh, just so motivated. And that's when I really was starting to make sure that I, I could get a foot in the door, just volunteering all of my time, trying to be helpful wherever I could because I wanted to be associated with these incredible people. And I just, it was such an aspirational uh, organization and I really wanted to be aligned with them. And, and I was so grateful for the opportunity to, I mean, checking the coats of some of the people I admired most in the world, I still remember how excited I was um, all those years ago. Um, you were doing, uh, you studied film in college and then decided that wasn't for you and ultimately ended up in uh, the aerospace profession, but you said you liked telling stories, and, and you certainly uh, tell an interesting one in this new book called "Not Necessarily Rocket Science." But have you got the uh, have you got the writing bug now? Are, are are there more books on the horizon from Kelly Girardi? Oh, it's so tough to say. One of my friends made just the best comparison to writing a book. It's like eating pancakes. You know, you start and the pile looks so amazing. And then halfway or less than halfway through, you're like, I never want to see another pancake again in my life. <laughs> and that's exactly how I felt with this book. I have so much respect for authors, um, you know, and especially of fiction, too. I, I can't imagine... It was hard enough having to write my own story that I know front and back and then thinking about creating an entirely other world. Um, it's just an amazing feat. I don't know if I have more in me, although my goal in life is to keep, you know, making my own memoir out of date. I want to keep achieving. I want to keep pushing the boundaries. And I, I hope to have more to write about. That's the goal. Now, you've alluded a couple times to... Um regular people, not necessarily rocket scientists and uh, astronauts, um, being able to travel into space. Yeah. And um, is is that something that, that you aspire to? A hundred percent. I would call it my sole goal in life. And, and it's one that's achievable. That's the exciting part. Um, you know, I, I've been working really diligently to, to build up my uh, skill set as a researcher, as a bioastronautics citizen scientist. I have had the amazing opportunity to test commercial spacesuits in microgravity, to test NASA-supported research in microgravity. I actually tested a biometric monitoring device right before it flew to the International Space Station to be put into use uh, with astronauts on board testing their biometrics while they were exercising. It was a Canadian Space Agency experiment. So I've really been working to build up the citizen science uh, skill set and something that average people can get involved with. And I think the birth of the commercial spaceflight industry is really the game changer here, right? It's suborbital spaceflight. And so you think of a company like Virgin Galactic who, you know, right now in the entire history of our species as a spacefaring species, we've sent less than 1,000 people ever to space. That, that's it. That's our entire, uh, you know, convoy of emissaries from Earth, less than a thousand. Um, when Virgin Galactic and other suborbital providers start operations, they can single-handedly more than double the amount of humans who have ever been to space in their first few years of business. And that's an extraordinary, I mean, it's a game changer. It's a paradigm shift. 
and I want to be a part of that. That's the democratization of access to space. It's democratizing access for students, for researchers, and yes, for tourists. I think that's a, an equally important part of expanding Earth's economic sphere and making this a viable industry is having um, a robust tourist uh, capability. How, how long before you're on the International Space Station brewing beer? <laughs> oh, so <there's> the <laughs> ISS, I mean, that's, that's a dream, but, I, you know, it, it's tough to say. I, I would have to say I would probably have better luck with a commercial space station, and I would peg that, you know, sometime in the next decade as we start seeing, um, you know, we are already seeing commercial modules attached to the International Space Station, but I'm envisioning in the future more space stations that are entirely commercial and new. And I think, once again, you know, think of countries that don't have their own space agencies, but who can partner with commercial companies to send their first representative to space, to send their own researchers, and to conduct their own science experiments in orbit. That's a really exciting part. And for that, we're going to need, you know, microgravity flight attendants. We're going to need the entire hospitality industry will explode the similar way that we have on Earth, we will see that one day in space. And so I do think it's going to be a really interesting economy to follow. How long do you think it'll be before uh, the average person could afford to take a, a, a trip into space to, to see what it's like? Yeah, so it, it, it's tough to say, and it depends entirely on how you define average, right? When Virgin Galactic first came out with the $250,000 seats, right, that, that's the price point that we were pegging it on. And so when you think about that, obviously that, that is much more than a plane ticket. But for someone whose sole goal is to go to space, it's, you know, that's a house. <laughs> um, and so, you know, it's, it's achievable in the sense that it's not out of the realm of possibility that someone who really wanted to save up for that and who wanted to achieve that in their life could do so at this particular point in time. And I think that's an incredible time to be alive. What a window in history where that's possible. Is it affordable to an everyday person on a whim? No, not yet. But it will be. The same way that reusable rocketry is driving down the cost of launch, driving down the price of pound per orbit to orbit. So too will um, suborbital flight help drive down the cost and make sure that more and more people can access. I think the other exciting thing is sponsored access, right? It's, you know, I'm hoping that I don't have to pay for the entirety of a ticket myself. My goal is to be able to get sponsorship with other companies who are looking to conduct research in those precious minutes of freefall in a microgravity environment and to be able to be a, a payload specialist testing those payloads in situ, in space. And that, um, what what is next for you? I mean, you've got this book out and you say you want to you want to build on your uh, your memoir uh, and in your resume but um what where are you now and and what's next for you yeah so right now i i participate in an, an incredible suborbital research program it's called project possum uh the acronym originally stood for polar suborbital science in the upper mesosphere and that was because it was a science mission born out of the interest of looking at this middling layer of our atmosphere, the mesosphere, which is 
actually not very well understood. And there are these really high altitude clouds that exist in the mesosphere called noctilucent clouds. They're, they're actually the highest altitude clouds in our atmosphere. And the scientists believe that they are actually quite sensitive indicators of climate change and potentially human-made climate change. And so it becomes really scientifically interesting to look at those clouds. The reason it was a suborbital spaceflight uh, research program is because we don't have a great way to access the mesosphere. Orbital flight goes too far, too high, and you know, sounding rockets, everything in between is, is too low. It's impossible to get a sample um, of the mesosphere. But suborbital flight is really the, the Goldilocks, right? It's uh, higher than a jet and lower than uh, the space station. And so being able to access that environment would require a suborbital crew. And so that was what the mission was originally designed around, and it has since expanded into all areas of bioastronautics research and citizen science for suborbital spaceflight. So once a year, I am flying research campaigns. We've partnered with the Canadian Space Agency, with the... Um, with MIT, with a number of research institutions and the National Research Council of Canada to fly in microgravity. And that's, you can imagine, an airplane with a roller coaster profile up and down. And on the downswing, you're experiencing that free fall, that, that zero gravity sensation of floating weightless. And that's those periods of times during those parabolas where we test technology. So that's that's what I do um, in the meantime while I wait for my ride to space. And <laughs> I'm very excited that that's an achievable goal in the next few years as, as Virgin Dick and other providers become uh, operational commercially. Um, have people like Elon Musk uh, had an, an impact on the public's interest in space and space exploration, and is he going to be the first used car dealer in space? <laughs> I, I think absolutely, right? You, get, you have to hand it to him. I mean, the, the momentum and the energy and the interest in space that someone like Elon is able to draw, is, it's, in, it's incredible. And, you know, the best part to me is, is watching this company have so much fun with it, right? It's, it's not just entirely sterile in the sense of, you know, this is the mission and nothing outside of the mission is important, right? It's also the story of the mission. It's the people at mission control. It's the cheering. It's the having fun with the payload. Seeing that cherry red Tesla, you know, in the payload bay of the Falcon Heavy, which, by <laughs> the way, the engineering feat alone is extraordinary, the most powerful operational rocket today. It's incredible. But putting a cherry Tesla and then putting a Starman dummy, playing Space Oddity on the radio, you know, having a Hitchhiker's Guide to Mars copy in the glove compartment, all of those little details that are just so such quirks of humanity and reminding us that all of these achievements are made possible by humans on Earth. And it, I, I think that energy that he's able to draw to space exploration and the, the excitement is just amazing, and, and I'm in, in gratitude for it. Um, is, is there... Um, oh, I lost my train of thought there. Um, but let me, let me ask you this. Um, 
I always uh, try to get guests to let listeners know where they can find out more about what we've been talking about. Not just the book, not necessarily Rocket Science, which is probably a great place to start. Um, but do you have a website where people can kind of follow your exploits? I do. I do. I have a very large social media presence. All of my handles are at Kelly Girardi. And, you know, what I would say for folks, certainly you follow me there. I, I do provide quite a bit of information and, and updates and, you know, try to share all of the exciting happenings in the industry. But for people who are really looking to get involved, I would say some of the best things to do are take a look at some of the space industry conferences that go on this year. They're all virtual, which is really wonderful because it also um, opens up access for so many new people who otherwise might not have been able to travel to those conferences. But this is still a really exciting time to get involved and to follow the momentum. Everything is so new. It's being done for the first time, many of these things. And so following those conferences online and, and getting involved um, is really a great first step to orient yourself to the space industry and to see some of the things that are happening and some of the opportunities that do exist to get involved learning about some of the companies that are pushing the barriers, learning about what NASA is prioritizing in the next few years. All of these things provide a ton of opportunities for our students, adults, anyone um, who are interested in, in following probably humanity's most exciting journey. Well, Kelly, it's been uh, a, a privilege meeting you and getting a chance to talk about this a little bit. Um, and I want to thank you for spending this time with me this morning. Absolutely. Thank you, Tom. It was wonderful to be a guest. I appreciate you having me. All right. Take care. Bye. Bye. That was uh, Kelly Girardi. She is an aerospace professional and popular science communicator and uh, the author of a new book called Not Necessarily Rocket Science that... Um, is in keeping with her mission to democratize access to space and expand humanity's footprint in the solar system. And uh, in her book, she offers a front row seat to the final frontier. We're going to be taking a uh, break here in just a moment, but we've got lots more of the Tom Sumner program straight ahead. So uh, don't touch that dial. Don't click that mouse. We'll be back with uh, much, much more right after this. Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the starship Enterprise. Its five-year mission to explore strange new worlds to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before.
Hello there, citizens. Darkwing Duck here. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out. The Tom Sumner program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call the X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner program. Do you have feelings of inadequacy? Do you suffer from shyness? Do you sometimes wish you were more assertive? If you answered yes to any of these questions, ask your doctor or pharmacist about tequila. Tequila is the safe, natural way to feel better and more confident about yourself and your actions. Tequila can help ease you out of your shyness and let you tell the world that you're ready and willing to do just about anything. You'll notice the benefits of tequila almost immediately. And with a regimen of regular doses, you can overcome any obstacles that prevent you from living the life you want to live. Shyness and awkwardness will be a thing of the past, and you'll discover many talents you never knew you had. Stop hiding and start living with tequila. Tequila may not be right for everyone. Women who are pregnant or nursing should not use tequila. However, women who wouldn't mind nursing or becoming pregnant are encouraged to try it. Side effects may include dizziness, nausea, vomiting, incarceration, erotic lustfulness, loss of motor control, loss of clothing, loss of money, loss of virginity, delusions of grandeur, table dancing, headache, dehydration, dry mouth, and a desire to sing karaoke and play all-night rounds of strip poker, truth or dare, and naked twister. Warning, the consumption of alcohol may make you think you're whispering when you're not. It's a major factor in dancing like a retard. It may cause you to tell your friends over and over again that you're in love with them. Also may cause you to think you can sing. Alcohol may lead you to believe that ex-lovers are really dying for you to telephone them at four in the morning. Alcohol may make you think you can logically converse with members of the opposite sex without spitting. It may create the illusion that you are tougher, smarter, faster, and better looking than most people. And it may lead you to think people are laughing with you. Alcohol may cause pregnancy, and it also may be a major factor in getting your ass kicked. So what are you waiting for? Stop hiding and start living with tequila. Tequila! Those hands, no matter whose they are, can spread the germs of many common diseases. That's why I want you to realize how important it is to keep hands clean, to wash them regularly and always before meals with Life Boy which not only removes dirt, but helps to remove germs. Teach the children this habit. Form it yourself. Always use Life Boy for hands and face as well as the back. America, your children have an amazing superpower. That's right. They can help save lives by simply washing their hands. Just 20 seconds of thorough hand washing after they've coughed or sneezed or been outside can help fight against the dastardly spread of germs. Armed with only soap and water and hands, your superhero can protect you, your family, and everyone out there in America land. Amazing! Find out more at coronavirus.gov. A message from the CDC and the Ad Council. The interest of goodwill. The Hoffman Beverage Company feels compelled to make this announcement. It's simply this. All Hoffman flavors have that happy taste, except sarsaparilla. We might as well come right out with it. We haven't quite hit that happy, carefree note in sarsaparilla. Now, please don't misunderstand us. Our Hoffman sarsaparilla is absolutely dependable. It's trustworthy. It's loyal. And many fine, upstanding citizens love it. But it just isn't what we call happy. You take our Hoffman orange, it's absolutely rollicking. Our lemon is almost giggly. 
Our black cherry and black raspberry are so bubbling with happiness, they dance in the glass. They all have natural flavor and famous Hoffman study sparkle. We're sorry about Hoffman's sarsaparilla. Why isn't it happy? Well, let me ask you, could you be happy if your name this was This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. many shows on the air which are basically interview shows and they start out in a very austere setting uh, there's the interviewer he sits behind a desk and in the background somewhere some figure in the news sits he's later in the show blinded by a spotlight <laughs> I'd like to present one of these shows they start off very dramatically something like this good evening ladies and gentlemen Mike Wallace Nightline our guest in the studio tonight is Dr. Warner von Warner, one of the many German missile scientists involved in our American missile program. Dr. von Warner, I suppose the question most often asked you, you were involved in the German missile program, you're now involved in our missile program. Was the fact that you were involved in the German missile program a matter of political conviction, or was this political expediency on your part. <laughs> oh boy, that one, huh? <laughs> Actually, I didn't, I didn't have that much to do with it, to tell you the truth. Um, this is back around 1940. I was working at a beer garden in Stuttgart. <laughs> And like on Friday night, you know, the waitresses and the waiters, we'd go to one of the girls' pads, you know, and uh, <laughs> order some pizzas and some schnapps and get half-gassed, you know. <laughs> and I used to fool around with these inventions, you know, and I'd take this tin can and put a firecracker underneath it, and I'd like the firecracker, and the thing go four or five feet up in the air, you know. And everybody'd say, what the hell was that? Or what a nut that Warner is. Somebody want to get Warner's hat. You know, something like that. Except there's one party. The little guy walks over, he's got a little mustache and a... <laughs> piece of hair falling on his <laughs> He says, hey, that, uh, that was interesting what you did with a, with a tin can there. <laughs> but uh, what, uh, what causes that? Eh? <laughs> I said, well, see, that's, um, for every action, there's a reaction, you see. And the, the force of the firecracker is it's, see, it's, first of all, it starts toward the floor. Well, the top of your can, see, it's... <laughs> Every time I do it, it jumps forward. <laughs> he says, what, uh, what do you call that thing there? I said, that's, uh, that's a Arcot. <laughs> it's named after my landlord, Irving Arcot. <laughs> see, I was, I was about three months behind in an inch, you know, and comes a knock at the door, and he says, look, Warner, you know, you got to knock off with the firecrackers in the middle of the night. You know, because the neighbors are complaining. And don't hand me the Madame Curie bit, you know what I mean? <laughs> what her landlord wanted to do about her rent, that's his business. I want my rent, see? I said, look, I'm working on an invention. If it works out, I'll name it after you. He says, you're going to call it an Irving? <laughs> I 
going to call the docket. So anyway, the guy at the party, little mustache, piece of hair falling in his eyes, he says, that would make a terrific weapon, you know that? <laughs> I said, well, you'd have to get right on top of the guy. <laughs> hit him in the face or something like that with, with a tin can to really hurt him. I think your big problem is going to be getting that close to the guy, you know. He says, no, no, what if, what if we took a hundred firecrackers and a great big tin can, see? I said, well, we saw that, but your problem there is, see, by the time you light the fuse on the last firecracker, He said, look, the, the, reason, the reason I'm asking you all this, I'm headed to German people. I said, oh. <laughs> I said, so, you know, congratulations. I, you know. <laughs> I hadn't seen a paper in a couple of days, so I took a version. <laughs> he says, would you like to be involved in our MISA program? I said, well, you know, I got a pretty good thing going at the, at the beer garden. You know. He says, look. <laughs> he says, it's a civil service job. <laughs> Three fifty a month. When you're 55, you go down to Baden Baden and forget the whole scene. <laughs> so anyway, all they want me to do, I sign these requisitions. Liquid oxygen, I don't know what it is. I'm signing Warner von Warner, and every month, three fifty. there it is, like clockwork. <laughs> Anyway, make a long story short, we lose the war. <laughs> and the Americans come to me, you know, and I've been getting offers from the Russians and all that, and they say, look, Warner, you know, we've seen your name on some of the requisitions, and uh, how'd you like to be involved in the American missile program, you know? I said, look, actually, I didn't have that much to do with it, you see. I mean, I was at this party in Stuttgart, see? <laughs> They said, ne never, mind, never mind, we need a name. No, we so anyway, I, I, I took the job, and uh, there it is, four fifty a month. When I'm 55, I go down to Fort Lauderdale, and <laughs> it's a pretty good deal. Well, uh, Dr. Von Warner, our time is running out on us. Uh, we have now put a man in space. The Russians, some two or three weeks before that, had put a man in space. Was this the eventual plan of the German missile program to put a man in space? Oh, we, we put a man in space. Oh, sure, back in uh, 1940. I put my brother-in-law, Herman, I put him on. <laughs> well, now, that's amazing, because, of course, the, the big problem we found uh, putting a man in space was the problem of reentry. And uh, apparently, in 1940, you had already solved that problem. Well, what problem is this you're talking about? <laughs> Well, Dr. Von Warner, we want to thank you very much for stopping by and wish you continued success. Well, thank you very much. Now, are you going to give me the money or are you send a check to me? This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program.
Megaluna was a friend of mine I used to see her all the time As the sun would fade away Luna came to play Everybody said you better watch out Love will hurt you, yeah, there's no doubt Guess they just could not see The things she does for me She's always there on my darkest nights And all the others said, got no time Make a luna forever I will be And there if you should fall I give you my own Nights go by and there's no trace I think I'm never gonna see her face again She proves me wrong She's been here all along What was I thinking to doubt true love Far beyond the stars above I hope you can forgive me Cause I cannot forget That you were there on my darkest nights All the others said got no time Megaluna forever I will be There if you should fall I give you my own And nothing lasts forever So that's what they say But I must beg to differ With the words of yesterday Cause you and I will always be One place some may never see Megaluna Alexander Zanjic, don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner. 